My pet rest monster, Rufus, would like me to ask you all a question. So the question for this month, for August, is what is your favorite fictional fantasy fight and how might you bring some of the excitement of that fight to the gaming table? Is it a wizard duel in the vein of Gandalf versus Saruman or Merlin versus Mad Madam Mim? What about a hero versus a dragon like Sigurd versus Fafner? Or a knight making a sacrificial stand in the manner of Sturm Brightblade versus Kidiara? David versus Goliath? Siege of Troy? Oh, yeah, yeah, right. I forgot to mention Rufus's favorite. The Monitor versus the Merrimack, because there's lots of metal in it. Hey there, Rufus. Thank you for the call-in, and thank you for the prompt. To answer, what is my favorite fantasy tango? My favorite mashup of military maneuvering? While there is a long tradition of knights and dragons or uh, dwarves and elves, and there are plenty of epic depictions of Pelennor Field-style engagements between massive forces, I think my favorite, or at least the one I'm going to talk about today, is the initial onset of the war between the elves and the trolls, as portrayed in Paul Anderson's The Broken Sword. Now, I'm not talking about the backdrop where they had fought a war in the past. I'm not talking about Scathlock's raid on Trollheim. Instead, I'm talking about when the King of the Trolls leads his army, his combined forces of different fey creatures against the forces of Alfheim in a naval engagement off of the coast of England. That epic engagement wherein the sleek, fast ships of the elves form a line against the oncoming hordes of the trolls, where the magic of Emmerich strengthens and positions them, where Scaflock in his dwarf-forged iron armor with his dwarf-forged iron weapons wreaks havoc on the trolls. Though vastly outnumbered, they exchange volleys of arrows, boarding actions, ramming, ships sink, ships drift ablaze, elves and trolls alike fall overboard, sinking into the depths under the weight of their armor. For those of you who have not read The Broken Sword, I will not spoil it. What I will say, it is a major plot point in the book, and one that is described in detail for its own chapter. Reading through it both inspired and excited me to try to incorporate that kind of element into my home game. So, there you have it. The engagement I want to present is the engagement between the fleet of the elves and the fleet of the trolls in the battle for Elfheim. Paul Anderson, The Broken Sword. What is it that I like about that engagement? Well, it touches on something that I think is missing in a lot of fantasy. A lot of fantasy is grounded primarily in a terrestrial environment, which makes sense. 
uh, we tend to be Eurocentric, uh, specifically Eurocentric to the Dark Ages between the collapse of the Romans and the onset of the Renaissance. Uh, and Europe is a continent, with the exception of the northern pieces, England and Scandinavia, the majority of what goes on in Europe during that period is on land. Uh, even some conflicts between the uh, English and the Continentals, uh, namely France, that occurs on land after a fleet has simply dumped its troopers onto the beach. Similarly, newer editions of the game, although they have rules for boats, they don't really have rules for naval interactions. And that's something that is present in the original game. Is that because Dave Arneson was a big ships of the line kind of guy and wanted to incorporate naval rules into whatever game he ran? Maybe. But the exciting part about those rules is it gives you an opportunity to create a maritime adventure. It adds an element of dynamism. When you're fighting ship to ship, you naturally have this uh, flow and ebb. You naturally have the proverbial Ming vase on a pedestal in the middle of your combat. That is, the referee essentially, in order to create a uh, believable experience, is almost obliged to throw in the rolling waves, the movement of the ships, and other dynamic elements that make the fight interesting. It, having ship-to-ship -ship combat makes you have to think about armor. Do I wear armor? Because if I fall overboard, I'm a goner. Uh, if you, you've got uh, 40 pounds of metal strapped to your body, you sink. Simple as. But if you wear the lighter armor that may allow you to swim in it, or at least to doff it in time to swim, then you're left exposed, left vulnerable, in a way that in a uh, terrestrial campaign, you wouldn't have to worry about. I've run a couple nautical-themed games in my day. Uh, a couple island-hopping games, uh, a couple games where ships were a big part of the experience, but I've never been able to run a domain-level game that incorporates elements of the maritime, and that's something that the scene I'm referencing gives me. That's something that Paul Anderson explores in that book. And having fights between boats with a moderately robust system to accommodate ship movements, that can be really exciting. To set it to scale, you can put these boats on the water, they can see each other coming, when, unlike on land, where your line of sight is regularly obscured by changes in topography, by tree lines, by buildings. Out in the water, your vision is essentially open. So, unless you're navigating a particularly snaking river, you can see your opponent coming. From there, you have the opportunity as the referee to incorporate uh, shoals, reefs, uh, small islands. Uh, you can then, the ships between the party, even if you have just the party and a set of uh, uh, pirates who are trying to come after them, the boats now have to maneuver. Uh, can you stay upwind? Uh, can you outrun them? Can you hide? Do you circle them and exchange volleys of arrows? As you close, can a ramming action 
and backpedaling sink the enemy uh, before it even comes to blows. And then finally, once the, if the ships come side to side in a boarding action, once you've been grappled, what does that mean for the crew? You can jump across and you have this vicious combat on the decks of the ship where there's ample ropes, barrels, other sailing accoutrement, which will block your movements. They impede formations, they provide cover, they provide an opportunity for using the environment against your enemy. Throwing the ones in armor overboard, really throwing anybody overboard because they will either sink or they'll have to climb out and they're out of the fight or out of the fight for a couple rounds. And then if you have multiple ships, what happens when one of them grapples and the other doesn't? Does it come up on the other side? Does it try to pepper the defenders on higher ground with missile fire? It's a naturally dynamic environment. It's a naturally exciting proposition. And like I said, I've pulled it off once or twice, and it was a lot of fun when I did it. With that in mind, I recommend The Broken Sword to anyone who hasn't read it, and I recommend reading it again to anybody who has. But I recommend, likewise, taking a look at the naval combat rules in the original game or in an OSR game of your choosing and trying to incorporate them at least once into your game because it's one of those things that's very exciting to do and not a lot of campaigns pull it off. Delvon Rufus, good prompt. For folks not in on the joke, at the top of the show there we had a prompt from Ray Otis of Plundergrounds. He had sent a call out a general purpose recording to the anchor sphere and gave the opportunity for anybody who felt compelled uh, or who were interested in the topic to take up the call and respond according to their fantasy preference or their literary preference. I thought it was fun and it was a good way to transition into some of these backlogged calls that I've got. Going back to our Dungeon Ecology episode, some commentary on our contest, and a good opportunity for me to stay on the air, to keep moving despite some of the crazy stuff that's going on. So I'll give you a little bit of an update on that at the end of the show. Uh, folks can skip that if you're not interested in my life. I know I'm not. From here, uh, we'll get right into the calls, and uh, we'll start off with Jason of the Nerds Variety Cast. Hey, Taylor. Just listened to your unboxing episode. I have a knit to pick. It's not really an unboxing because we never heard you take it out of the packaging. So it's a review, and I think it was a great review. I really liked it. I liked the way you went through it, and I appreciate it. Very interesting product. Sounds like it's very well put together. But it's not really an unboxing because we didn't hear you take it out of the package. So sorry to call you out on that. But, you know, as a friend, I, 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 I have to let you, I have to be honest with you, you know? That is true. It was not an unboxing. Uh, I'm still working on what to call it. I'm thinking maybe an outprinting, uh, as that's what I did. I printed it out to read it. Uh, I will do my best to find better printer sound effects for the next one. And I do appreciate you, Jason, because a good friend will celebrate your victories with you, uh, but a great friend will celebrate picking you while you're down a little bit just to make sure you don't screw up again next time. As far as VTTs always being slower, you know, it really does depend on the system. So we were playing Pathfinder the other day, Pathfinder 1. Joe over Hindsightless is running a Wrath of Righteous game that I'm in. And there's no question that using 
Roll20 and the automated character sheets for rolling is faster than somebody rolling dice and doing the math. Right? It, it just is. I mean, yes, somebody could figure out all their modifiers modifiers ahead of time and add it to the, or, you know, apply it to the die roll. But let's be honest, with Pathfinder, you've got not only the to hit roll, you also have the, you know, what you need to hit to make it a critical, and then you have the damage, and then the damage if it's critical, and roll 20 just does all that automatically off the character sheet. So that's definitely faster than doing it manually. <laughs> Man, you're taking me back. <clears throat> In the uh, late 2000s, early 2010s, I ran a lot of 3.5 and Pathfinder, and you are you are correct when you say there's there's a chunk of it to it but man i had it down like the back of my hand thinking about it the immersion factor for someone who's not as savvy at math for someone who when doing those rollings and all that stuff for someone that that takes them out of the instant the vtt is kind of an immersion tool it will help them by abstracting all of that away, doing all of that for them. Well, not, it's automating. Automating all of that stuff for them. But at the same time, it, it's this kind of the same as having a smart dial on your phone. You, you're old enough to remember phones didn't always remember the people you were calling. So, man, when I was, before I had a smartphone, I knew a lot of numbers. Today, I know two numbers. I know my wife's phone number and I know the phone number at my parents' old house, the landline that we had growing up that has been disconnected as of probably 2017. Uh, so I know one working line and uh, two if you count that I probably remember my own number. But the point is, the uh, how many people play those games but don't actually know the rules and rely on the VTT to provide the framework for them, to execute the rules for them. It's food for thought. I know uh, I kind of intentionally don't rely on VTTs because when I first got into them, I caught myself not remembering the to hit matrices. <laughs> I caught myself forgetting how combat works in BX because I was so used to the system doing it for me. But not everyone is as uh, silly as I am. Now, in some games, you know, that don't have all that extra math and all the modifiers, then, yeah, it's really probably is just as fast to roll at home. Like Barbarians of Lemuria, one of the problems with the character sheet is there's like three pop-ups that come up. So you roll the dice on the character sheet, and that's like, you know, enter, the, enter this, and then that goes away, and then enter this, and... So by the time you enter all that stuff, it'd be faster to do it at home. But it really does depend on the system. Yeah, you'd think that they would have optimized that. That you'd think they would have had one pop up with multiple entry boxes. That should be possible, right? Yeah, I'm not as versed at Roll Twenty as I am in other places. I guess the last thing I should mention is reference Colin's show, you know, Spike Pit. Hopefully, he does get that episode polished up and shiny and put it back up because it's a good episode. One of the, the big pushes, though, wasn't so much to help immersion. You have your PC talk to another PC at the campfire as the PCs. But it, it was also a suggestion how to get, you know, quiet and shy players more active in the game. 
So it was a way to kind of bring them out and get them engaged, you know, because we all know you have some people that want to talk the whole game. You have other people who are happy to sit by and not say anything. And that's okay. There's nothing wrong. If a player is happy to be there but not really engaged, that's okay. I have no problem with that. But it was a way to kind of help people that might be a little bit shy or get more involved, I think, was one of the pushes. But hopefully Colin will call on himself. I do look forward to discussing the topic with you in the future, and I hope the best for you and your family. I do not have any call-ins from Colin, to my knowledge, but I do remember soon after I got this message, uh, Colin did re-release an older episode, and I listened to it. I believe at the time uh, on the Discord I said, I have some thoughts on this, I should write up a blog post. Uh, so I will have to go back and listen to it again because uh, life's been kicking me in the teeth a little bit. I'm a little behind where I needed to be. Well, I say that. Podcasting is a hobby. Uh, hobbies are for fun. And sometimes life gets in the way of fun. And I think everyone agrees, life comes first. But the point is, a story comes to mind. The largest group I ever played in had 12 player characters. Uh, my roommate, uh, well, or who, who, the fellow who would be my roommate the year later, ran the game, and uh, I played a cleric of a forgotten dragon deity. Among the 12 players was one, a friend who kept call, getting called to work, so he wasn't that talkative, but two, the wife of one of the other players who did not say a word the whole time. I remember my buddy talking about the different strategies he had tried to get her engaged, one of which was, I think the uh, aforementioned guy who got called to work would occasionally talk to her in character. Her responses were kind of curt. It wasn't necessarily that she didn't like us. She did like us. She talked outside of the game, but in the game, she was there effectively uh, for combat and absorption and would remember things. Like you said, that's just the game she enjoyed, and what I told him at the time is she keeps coming back, and uh, she hasn't complained as far as we know, so she can have it. If she's happy, she's happy, and everybody wins. In terms of whether intra-party roleplay would work to get someone to talk more, I think it would depend on why they weren't talking. I am myself a reserved player. You wouldn't think that based on how loud I am on podcasts and uh, actual plays, but I say that you can actually watch that transition. The pattern I tend to go in, I tend to either play a support class or play a low charisma class. Early on, I try to avoid being the face and I try to feel out the people I'm playing with. So. I don't roleplay much at the beginning, and you can see that if you watch the transformation uh, of my Kalmata character on Jason Hobbs's game. At the first couple times, I didn't talk much, and when I did talk, I was not curt, but you know, not uh, not loquacious like I am now. <laughs> but once I figured out who I was playing with. I apologize for any background noise. I'm recording outside as I'm going for a quick walk at lunch. Um, 
and I'm going under, maybe I should stop recording while I'm going under the train tracks. Okay, there we go. But the point is, I am quiet and reserved until I figure out the group I'm with, and then, once I trust the group I'm with, once I know I'm among friends, then I'll start talking, then I'll start role-playing. If someone in a new group role-plays intra-party with me, and I don't know them, that puts me off. That would not get me to talk more. That would honestly probably get me to ghost the group. Because for me, I need to feel comfortable before I'm going to do that. I need to feel like I know the zeitgeist. I need to know the flow and the dynamic of the group. If I'm being asked to step out of myself before I know that flow and I, before I know what the boundaries are, no, not going to happen. That said, if it was a person who was happy to roleplay but who just didn't feel empowered, absolutely that would that would work. So you could, if you get them to talk, uh, it's kind of like uh, you you could call them. Oh, what's the expression I'm looking for? Um, the Pringles people. Once you pop, they don't stop. If it's that condition, if it's just getting them out of that initial rut and into the game, absolutely, then that would get them in and work. But I wouldn't think that it could necessarily be a universal solution uh, to try to get people to be more in character. Then, at the same time, there's expectations. Uh, I won't get to, I know this uh, response is over five minutes at this point, so I'll probably slow down, but I don't want to get into too deeply. People who are you expecting a improv theater hour or are you expecting fantasy adventure? Intrapersonal role play with someone who wants to kill orcs, that may not get them to talk more just because they're not here expecting to talk. So, well, there's my, uh, there's my six minute ramble on that. <laughs> Thank you for calling in. This is Joe from Biggest Geekus. A long time no speak to you. Anyway, uh, I just listened to your last two episodes. The one on um, immersion and the, um, the callback episode and the unboxing episode, the one after. Uh, I have to uh, say I agree with everything you said about immersion. See, I knew I liked you for a reason. Insightful, smart fella. I only do the method play acting type stuff to emphasize a particular action or to um, make a joke sometimes. Although I know some people don't like all the jokes at the table. I do. Anyway, um, keep up the good work. The uh, unboxing item that you mentioned sounded intriguing. I'm probably going to look that one up. Um, any, all that said, have a good one and talk to you later. Hey, this is Joe again from Biggest Geekus uh, on Immersion again, kind of a part two. Um, I understand not everybody um, plays the same way. We are, the Immersion bad, immersion good is subjective. And immersion bad or immersion good 
that depends on your definite immersion, doesn't it? So, <laughs> but that will be another show. And many people love getting into their roles. Um, and I really liked your um, bringing up the uh, adventure gaming uh, versus role playing. I have always thought them to be synonymous, um, but many people do not. And a lot of people like the method acting thing. Um, unfortunately, some people will sneer at the others and say, oh, you're a role player or you're a, you're a not a role player. You know, play at the game that's good for the, your style and don't worry about what other people do. Anyway, have a good one. Talk to you later. This illustrates a very important point, one that I kind of mentioned, or hinted at at least, in my response to Jason earlier. Playstyle. Expectations. There are people out there who want to have improv hour. There are people out there who want to spend the session exploring their feelings. There are also people out there who want to play a board game. These are separate ends of a spectrum. I don't think it's the same spectrum. I think there are two spectrums there. Uh, every person has a degree to which they want to get into character and a degree to which they want to engage in the mechanics. I think there are two levers and we're finding where we are on those sliders, uh, trying to find a group that we're close enough to mean that it suits everybody's needs. So it's not like you're trying to take two magnets and click them together, but instead you're adjusting the audio on one of those old-fashioned sliders and trying to make the music sound just right. Or trying to get the Death Star thing aligned and, you know, blow up Alderaan. But that's a different campaign. To that end, I do like developing personalities for my characters. I do like uh, getting into settings and understanding the lore. But... I'm going to do that in the context of an adventure. I have no desire, for uh, example, to jump onto the hate wagon. I have no desire to explore my feelings working at Fantasy Starbucks while I'm trying to pay off the student loans I got at Strixhaven. Give me an abandoned tower with a basement that goes down for miles. Give me a mountain with a dragon inside that somehow I need to slip past and uh, steal the Arkenstone from. I will figure out who I am along the way, and other folks will figure out who they are along the way too. I'll drink the beer, I won't eat the pretzels, but eh, it is it is what it is. And at the end of the day, like I said, I think you hit the nail on the head there is you gotta figure out where you fit on the spectrums, and we gotta align those tunes with the groups that we play in. Not everyone enjoys the same thing, not every table is compatible with every person, and when we realize that, then we can have experiences at those tables. We can curate games at those tables that best suit what the referee is wanting to ref and what the players are wanting to play. No shade on anyone involved. Just pointing out the obvious. Like you said, play the game you want to play and don't worry about what other people do, think, or say. Good advice. Thank you for calling in. It's good to hear your voice. Hey Taylor, really enjoying you sharing this uh, preprint of the product, and I'm glad the author has allowed you to do that. This actually sounds like a really great product. Um, there's this information is 
out there, but it's in one, putting it all in one form in a more modern sense, you know, ecological sense seems to be really cool. Um, I, we've been going through this dungeon in, um, in a, a classic adventure in the, the village of Hamlet and something seems so randomly placed that we don't quite understand. And even, even when asking some of the other dungeon denizens, like, hey, you know, we had these things we ran into over there. Like, oh, we never knew about that. You know what I mean? So it's like it's the GM has to really think about why those things would be there. And he, the GM in this case made it seem like it was they didn't even know because it was illogical to them, too. So I love like the logic in a dungeon. I, too, try to make sense out of the dungeon. I think that was also the vague direction that uh, Gygax took, hence the old Grognardia Gygaxian naturalism article. But the moral of the story, if you produce an environment that makes sense, if you produce an environment that's internally consistent, in, for a serious gamer, that is, someone who is role-playing, who is engaging with the mechanics, who is trying to immerse themselves, improving the verisimilitude in that regard produces a living world. And a living world is easier, in my experience, to immerse oneself in. Now, that's not knocking the beer and pretzels approach. If your group is here to get together, kill some orcs, and have a good time, it's okay if the room is... if each room is one attraction after the other. It's just a different style of play. But, in a more serious game, uh, and in, again, to my experience, in games with uh, longer longevity, having that sense of consistency and, ver and uh, believability is, is key. So, to that, to that end, uh, listeners, this was a reference to the underground dungeon ecology architect... I'm in my car. Give me, give me a break. <laughs> but this is in reference to the Underground Architects Dungeon Ecology zine by uh, World of Weirth on itch.io, as advertised in my outprinting episode back in 2010 or whenever it was the last time I was able to get a podcast out. And not the only person who's given me that feedback, positive feedback on it. So it's a great little tool, a great little mechanism to try to procedurally infuse the aforementioned believability. And so for folks running a more serious campaign, definitely may provide a tool to get you uh, a little closer to where you want to be. Thank you, Carl, for calling in. Hey Taylor, Jason here. Don't worry about an entry for me for the contest. I kept telling you I was going to send one and I never managed to do it. So don't, I, I don't want you to feel that you lost my entry because you definitely didn't. <laughs> Great job for everybody that entered. Great entries. They were all wonderful. Really enjoyed listening to them. Um, yeah, good stuff. Good stuff. Glad to hear you back on the air. Look forward to your future episodes. Take care of yourself. We'll talk to you soon. Oh, by the way, what I do for contests is I open up an episode in Anchor, and as soon as I get the messages in, I import them into that draft episode so they, they stack there all month or for the length of the contest. And then in the, in the notes for the contest, the show notes, 
if there's narratives or texts or DMs, I put a note in there to read those to keep myself straight. Thank you for the well wishes. Regarding the self-care, I will do just that, or I will do it to the best of my ability. Regarding the contest, I'm very glad you enjoyed it, and apparently uh, most folks did, because it's getting the same amount of listens as most of my episodes do. I was a little nervous to advertise it at first, just because I wasn't I wasn't 100% if I was on board with it. I, not, I wasn't sure if I was going to do another one, but hey, if, uh, if you guys enjoy it, then hey, uh, the audience is right. To talk to methodology to keep messages straight, I actually had figured out the uh, technique you described from having called in to your contests. Uh, whenever I had called in, uh, I would see, Jason has added your message to an episode. But then a month later, uh, Jason has published some of your messages. And so that that told me you were you know, creating the episode early and adding them in. So I tried to do the same thing, and I did do that with the other messages. And thinking about it, that's going to mess up my, uh, my call-in episodes. It dawns on me, Anchor has talked about removing notifications on your phone when you get messages. That's going to suck because I don't know how to add those segments into an episode from my phone without notifications. The way I've been doing it, I click the notification bell, I click the so-and-so has sent you a message. It doesn't matter who, because it will take me to the messages screen. And then from the messages screen, I can add stuff to the episode. I'm going to have to start putting those into the episode uh, on the computer in advance and then trying to record them while driving. That, that'll put a wrench in the process. Thank you. Thank you, Spotify. But uh, where was I? But yeah, the... Um, the thing I was worried about was the other entries. So the email entries, the Discord entries. Early on, I had followed the same process. Uh, if I received an email, I printed it out uh, into a PDF and put it into a file folder on the computer where I was going to collate all the messages and edit in Audacity. Uh, same for the Discord messages. But the problem I encountered, I made a horrible mistake of going on vacation. And that's a good segue uh, into the state of the podcast I promised earlier. So I, do, I think this is going to be the last thing I talk about uh, when I wrap up. So if you guys don't worry about that, feel free to skip through to the end. My wife and I really enjoy spending time in Western North Carolina. I've been going up there since I was a kid. My dad has been going up there since he was a kid. To the, we have family who lives uh, down in the low country, not far from there. It's just a beautiful, beautiful place. And uh, if you are not listeners on the CWR Discord, I recommend you join us. I had posted some pictures and a link to a folder full of pictures of uh, the beautiful mountain vistas that I was able to walk around while I was up there. To get there uh, took us two days. That's always the case. Uh, we try to stop over because it's an eight-hour, nine-hour drive from where we live, and the boys just can't handle it, so we cut it in half. Um, that's, as I said, that was expected, but children's stuff is heavy, and I've got a, I drive a pilot, it's really tall, I have to stand on the wheel well to get into the roof rack to bring down the 50-pound uh, bait playpen, load them all up, 
then load it down the next load it down when we get there then drag it upstairs set it up next morning break it down uh, take it down the flight of stairs put it back on the roof rack take it up drive for another five hours and then take it down and set it up so yeah the, the travel days are rough um, but that was the start then the plan was to spend some time in the mornings working on some gaming content you know push out some dungeons do some edit some podcast episodes collate the messages I got for the contest but the uh, because I can't really exercise when I'm up there there's a workout center and I used to go to the workout center uh, uh, it's really it's really not bad it's like five bucks for a week's pass uh, but the uh, the point is with new with the new baby it's hard to do that Right, pulled into a parking lot there. The uh, devil was beating his wife on the bridge. So I, I, I will do the podcast if I'm driving on a sunny day, but not when it's raining. So that said, what was I talking about? I was just complaining about my vacation. So the vacation went okay. Uh, we had a bit of a car problem, so I ended up spending a day down the mountain getting that taken care of. Uh, additionally, we had some problems with menu planning, so I went down to the grocery store more often than I wanted to, but that's okay. My dad was able to come up. That was fun. The boys got to spend some time with him. They got to spend some time with his dogs and the deer. Oh man, the deer, they walked up to the door. Apparently tourists like to feed these bad boys because they expected that we would feed them. So I'm pretty sure it's a bad idea, but we did. So I bought a package of greens and I let the twins put it out on the railing uh, of the patio and so the deer would come up and uh, timidly sniffed at it uh, took one green into his mouth and then the younger twin ran out and roared like a t-rex and scared the whole herd away so he had a ball doing that but uh, you know the, the the deer didn't trust us anymore they waited until uh, everybody was gone in order to snack on those their greens but the but so we had a very busy time I was not able to get any of my RPG stuff done that's okay but on the way back oh man I, I guess I lifted something wrong because on the way home I twisted something pretty gnarly in my back uh, getting that stuff off the roof and tried to sit still for the week uh, at work uh, surprisingly being in an upright position at my desk actually helped uh, but then lo and behold uh, that following weekend I had totally forgotten was my nephew's birthday so now I've got to load up the car and now we're driving for two hours and going to a pool party and so instead of recovering from a back injury I gotta watch the twins at the pool uh, which was which was again that was a lot of fun uh, we we did the birthday party they had a blast being in the water uh, was gentle for the most part and the boys were uh, they enjoyed it. We got home and one of them told me, Dada, we should go back and have another birthday party tomorrow. And uh, I said, we will definitely go back and have more birthday parties. Though the uh, frequency, I hate, uh, hate to tell you, a little bit less, a uh, little bit less active. But time goes, time goes too fast as it is. So the next week at work, uh, back did not like that I ended up sleeping in a different bed from my wife uh, just because I I had to prop myself up funny with pillows in order to sleep properly uh, 
it would get to the point where inhaling hurt. What what kind of what kind of cruelty is that? <laughs> where it hurts to breathe of all things. Uh, but yep, live uh, lived on Motrin for a week or two there. He goes on to forget to mention that the kids got sick, but I won't uh, detail that for you. And uh, work got a little hectic. Uh, ended up working two weekends in a row and late night on a Thursday. And I just called my boss on that Friday and said, I, I, I will come in, but I need, to, I need to head home early. I need to take a break. And so Friday I was able to leave a little bit early uh, after only six hours instead of my usual, you know, nine or 11. But the important part, this week my acting manager had the bright idea to involve our architecture with some design decisions that we were trying to do to move a project forward. And lo and behold, the lead architect wants to build this huge, uh, super modern distributed system. And it's, it's like, you realize there's literally one developer working on this and I've got other things I'm supposed to be doing at the same time. So I'm a little nervous about that, but I'm gonna talk to my boss tomorrow and we'll figure it out. At the end of the day, May even may just come down to budget, but you're not here to hear me complain. Uh, you're here to hear me say I am excited uh, that I am really hoping I'm on the other side of uh, that particular rough patch, and I'm looking forward to start to run a game, uh, to start running games again. That's something I'm hoping to do in the next couple weeks. So keep an eye out there. I hope to be running my OD&D campaign. I hope to be uh, finishing the and publicizing my results for the campaign carnival chainmail solo games. And we'll be on the lookout. I've been reorganizing uh, my uh, ringmail medieval battles game. Uh, so that will... Uh, that is designed to be a faithful and compatible system to uh, the original 1974 war game, uh, inspiring the world's largest uh, and first role-playing fantasy adventure uh, system. So uh, be be on the lookout for that to drop in the next few weeks, or you know whenever I get it out. And things are moving again. Um, things are moving, and I'm excited. So here's to hoping that. Uh, once all these projects and the work kind of smooth out, and uh, once all the stuff at my real work, we figure out where we're going to be, uh, I'll be able to address the uh, situation, and I will be able to plan accordingly. So that's where I am. Uh, I appreciate everybody's ear uh, to hear me complain about my first world problems and then how I'm going to first world solve them. I appreciate my callers. I appreciate my contest entrance. Uh, I was able to make that donation I had promised. I will put the proof of purchase in the screen capture on the YouTubes so that everybody can see that we really did do something good for some uh, families who needed our help. Not a lot of good. 15 bucks doesn't go very far, but uh, we're not going to dwell on that too much. <laughs> in any case... I've rambled on long enough. This episode is a good length as it is. So, between now and next time we talk, delve on.
The Quick Square Ringmail podcast is an independently owned and operated product released for educational and informative purposes under the Totally Steal This license, which is kind of like Creative Commons, except f- licensing. Segments recorded within a vehicle are recorded using a Bluetooth hands-free device in conjunction with local vehicular safety legislation. The music for the Clear Square Ringmail podcast is Gold Coffee by Michael Ramirez C. Retrieved from Mixkit.co and used under the Mixkit royalty-free music license. Sound effects used in the Clear Square Ringmail podcast are also retrieved from Mixkit.co and used in accordance with the Mixkit-free sound effects license. Clear Square Ringmail does not describe to nor endorse views or opinions expressed by call-ins, guests, or even the host, unless you think they're awesome, and thus does not assume any liability regarding the consumption or distribution of this podcast. By listening to the Clear Square Ringmail podcast, you agree to these provided terms. Parties with questions regarding these terms, conditions, or releases are encouraged to reach out to Clear Square Email at the prescribed methods provided on the Clear Square Email blog. Parties dissatisfied with these terms, conditions, or releases are encouraged to go suck an egg.